Good morning. Let me open us with a prayer. Gracious Father, for this day we give you thanks for the parables that uh, you told through your Son um, that we'll be looking at for the next several weeks, couple of months. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, Lord, um, make the audacious claims, draw us to contrition, and allow your grace to be magnified in our lives so that in our weakness, uh, in our our death, and in our um, failings and loss, you would in fact be known as the Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, yeah, we'll give it a minute or two. Thanks. Um, just because I'm starting so so early. Um, it's good to see everybody. Um, it's good to be back behind the podium. I kind of unintentionally had several weeks kind of off, um, but it's been fun to. Uh, to think about the parables, this is Ron Flowers here on my left. Um, he's going to be teaching this with me, this series, along with... Hey, Jason. Come on in. starting early. Um, uh, I'll wait. So, good morning. Hey, Crawford. Um, Ron is going to be teaching some, as is Michael Sansbury. The three of us are going to tag team so that I think throughout the summer, even with summer schedules being what they are with vacations and other sorts of camp drop-offs and things that are going to take me away on Sundays, Ron and Michael and I will each be able to, to pull together all of the, um, the Sundays and I think cover most of the parables that are in the four Gospels, really the three Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So uh, looking forward to it. It's going to be a good series, I think. Um, Michael and Ron have much better titles than I do, so you can look for that. Um, it's something to look forward to. Uh, as a text, um, I am recommending this. Um, almost this class, if I were teaching it, I would just almost want to do a book report on this class. It's a guy named Robert Capon. Um, it's known around here. Um, an Episcopal minister, in fact, which is hard to find an Episcopal minister who writes well. Um, but he does. He's an older man now. I think he's past 90, still alive as far as I know, up in... Um, in uh, like Connecticut, New Haven, something like that. Uh, I don't think he's active very much anymore, but a prolific author. And he did this, these books on the parables, and this is sort of the compendium between three volumes. Um, we have it. It is it's outstanding. Um, if you wanted to see Gretchen nodding, she's been there. If uh, if you just wanted it for like a small group or a resource that you wanted to just look at one parable and see what's what's his take on the Good Samaritan, what's his take on the uh, the parable of the ten. Ten talents or something like that. You could do that, but it reads well. I mean, you could read it just page one to page three hundred, and uh, and you won't get bored. It doesn't read like a Bible commentary, per se. And so we'll be, I'll be using his text a lot to um, kind of bounce off of with several other things as well. So parables. Um, get some notes out and think about where we want to head. What um. Let me just pop this straight off. When I think of parables, um, I think uh, I think the common perception, because it's still it's in me. I think the common perception is parables. Oh, that's the nice sort of way that Jesus taught a lot, where he sort of used things that he was just kind of around. It was a nice teaching aid. He's looking out there and he says, "Look, like that flower over there. The kingdom of heaven is like." Or, "Look, there's a tree. The kingdom of heaven is like." And it's just sort of this convenient teaching aids where, uh, you know, Jesus, quote-unquote, a good teacher, even if you don't want to sort of believe in his divinity or believe in who he was or whatever else, at least all religions should be able to say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. I mean, I can get on board that train 
you know, no matter what I am, sort of spiritual but not religious or even atheist or, you know, a Buddhist or whatever, you know, Jesus, good teacher, son of God, not quite there, you know. I want to pop that bubble throughout the series, I hope, and sort of draw that up. That is not what a parable is. If anything, we want to look at parables and at the end of August, I think Ron and Michael and I would have done a good job if we walk away thinking parables, not simple. Parables, not straightforward. Parables, not helpful to bring clarity. In fact, parables, strange. <laughs> parables, you know, they obfuscate. What a great word. It sounds like uh, what it means. It means what it sounds like. It just kind of muddies the waters a lot. Um, that's what parables do. When we think of parables, there's two or three that people usually think of. What are they? The class interaction here. Mustard the mustard seed. I wouldn't think of that one. What's that? Prodigal, prodigal son. son. And what? Anybody else? The good Samaritan. Workers in the what? <laughs> now you're being there. I usually think um, of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, uh, where we think, well, we know what that is. I mean, God must sort of uh, be patient, and he's, uh, he's in the job of forgiving because the prodigal son goes away, and whatever that means, prodigal, yada, 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 he went to Las Vegas and came back, and God has to sort of say, hey, I still like you, no big deal, come on, it's, it's all good. Um, or the Good Samaritan. Um, you know, Good Samaritan, we're looking at the video a little bit, a little bit cheeky, a um, little bit offensive, but it's still funny. Uh, Good Samaritan, that must mean sort of this is what Christianity is, because uh, Good Samaritan, um, somebody who wasn't supposed to be nice to somebody, was nice to somebody. So that must be uh, what parables are for. They're to tell us how to live. They're to help us see the way God really feels about human behavior, and he really values being nice. Um, and so I think of those two parables uh, as the ones that usually illustrate, and we use those a lot in Sunday school, and we say parables of Jesus all sort of fall in that category. Parables teach us something. Parables show us how to live. It's not true. Parables are not Aesop. Parables are not Aesop's fables. You know, stupid grape must have been sour anyway. You know, that's what we think of when Jesus is teaching parables, and it's not true. That's not what it's going to be like. Sort of making my case and kind of putting it out there to see what all this is. Um, outright, we're going to be looking a little bit at John, uh, excuse me, Luke 18, um, and it's a way of thinking about parables not being a teaching aid. In Luke 18, it starts, and we're going to look at the uh, the parable of the unjust judge, um, which is a it's also called the parable of the persistent widow. I called it the nagging widow. Um, then it goes into the parable of the, the, uh, the Pharisee and the publican, where the publican or the tax collector um, beats his breast and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then he goes into the nice place where Jesus sort of pats the children on the head and says, suffer the little children, or let the little children come to me. And then what else happens? And then he predicts his death for the third time, uh, where the disciples don't get it and they don't want to hear it. So all of this, that's what happens in Luke 18, and I say that because I'm trying to pop the bubble that parables are nice, clear teaching aids. At least I can get on board with Jesus as a good teacher. At the end of Luke 18, actually sort of towards the, towards the end at Luke 18, uh, he says, but they understood none of these things. And I think when he's talking about that, it comes directly in the context of Jesus predicting his death for the third and final time, where he says, look, disciples, look, you twelve, uh, the Son of Man, his reference to himself, 
the Son of Man must be beaten and then delivered over to death and die, and on the third day rise again. That's what a Christ does. And all the disciples are like, no, 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 we, we've read, and we know what a Christ is supposed to do, and that's not it. That's the wrong idea, Jesus. You, 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 you are a nice guy, but that's not quite right. And they say, and so Luke says, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Exhibit A, Jesus is a good teacher. No, he's not. He's teaching, and nobody understands what he's talking about. He's saying, look, it's like this nagging widow that comes to a corrupt judge. Look, it's like this Pharisee and this publican who are both coming into the temple. Which one do you think goes away justified? And he sort of sets them up and pulls the rug out. We're going to look at that in a little while. And they don't get it. Jesus is not a good teacher. I really don't understand that sort of trope that goes out there, that Jesus is a good teacher amongst the world's religion. He really isn't. I mean, you look at the Bibles. What do we spend our lives doing, some of us, is studying the Bible. If he was a good teacher, wouldn't we, like, study it and say, like, got it. I understand it. Two plus two equals four. I can even understand sort of string theory, whatever that is. You know, you can learn these things and sort of get it, master it, be an expert in it. If you dive in to the scripture, at best you walk away saying, I know so much less than when I started. I thought all this. Now I'm, I'm totally unclear. What is that? It's just the word knocking out all of these prejudgments, these pre-prejudices. That's what the word prejudice means. These prejudgments, these presuppositions, these assumptions that we bring into the text. Um, and you can see I'm kind of on a train here. Um, and parables are sort of some of the some of the places we understand the least. Um, Robert Capon had a great throwaway line. Uh, he says, um, nowhere in the Bible is an unmade-up mind more called for than in the reading of the parables. Nowhere in the Bible is an unmade-up mind more called for than in the reading of the parables. I like that phrase, and I kind of want to invite us this summer for whatever amount of time you want to spend in this class with people coming and going, because every class will stand on its own. Um, Nowhere in the scriptures, even Revelation, as John and I were talking beforehand, uh, is an unmade-up mind more called for than in the parables. We evacuate what we um, think of. And, and why? For just using one example, you know, in our Bibles, they have those little headings which kind of help us put some breakpoints in there, and it says the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the, uh, the persistent widow. Well, those aren't in the original text. I think most of us probably know that or would intuit it. They're not in there. They didn't, they didn't come with that. Tradition, the church has sort of added those throughout um, its history, and oftentimes they're wrong. Prodigal son's the best example. It's not really, it's not really about the prodigal son. There's, a, there's two sons in this story. One doesn't get sort of the only billing. It's, it's definitely, at best, 1A and 1B. It's really 1A and 1A, but really it's about the father. Um, it has nothing to do with the sun. Uh, and so we're, we're led wrongly. Nowhere in the Bible is an unmade-up mind more necessary than as we approach the parables. And so that's where I kind of want to go with that. Um, any comments or thoughts before I sort of continue? Any evocations so far? 
Um, let's look at this. It's a little video, just two minutes, kind of warm up, um, like this room needs any more warmth, um, kind of warm up the class. Uh, Mitchell and Webb, it's this sort of, their English BBC sort of comedy sketch. Small disclaimer, I mean, it's just a little bit offensive. It's Jesus telling the, the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan to his disciples. Um, uh, you know, no, no, no bad language per se, but it's just, it, it's an illustration. So let's look at um, Mitchell and Webb, Jesus teaching his disciples about the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to make a huge teaching point out of this, by the way. It's, it's just some filler. So. Fine, on the other side, leaving the man helpless. But then who should wander by but a Samaritan of all people? And he actually helps the man. Hang on, Mark. No, no, he went over and actually... No, sorry. No, no, no. I, I, I mean, this is what I'm saying, that a Samaritan, all right, so have a good thing about your attitudes, So, you know, mildly offensive, but that's where the humor is. Um, and again, not making a, there, it's not a teaching point to really drawn from that, except it approaches just a little bit of this. So nowhere is a made-up mind more called for than the reading of a parable. Um, uh, addressing prejudices, prejudgments, things that we bring forward into our reading. And it's a, it's a word that maybe... To, uh, to hear, you know, this, this whole idea of a good Samaritan. You know, we're going to look today at a Pharisee. And we've got all of this sort of ingrained ideas that Pharisees, oh, that's bad. We're actually going to look and it's like, I thought of it this week. I would want my daughters to marry a Pharisee. I really would. Um, we're going to look at that, try to evacuate some of, of uh, what we have there. And on the product on the Good Samaritan, Ron's going to teach on it next week, so I'm not going to steal any thunder. But towards the idea that a parable, there's an idea that there are there's a way of there's an assumption amongst many 
that parables are so broad that you can just kind of do with them what you want. They're like Plato. They're the Plato parts of the Bible where you can sort of bend it and mold it and, and they're so open that, that Jesus just leaves it open for anybody to make any kind of meaning that they want. And that's plainly not right. Um, most of the parables have one interpretation. A few, like the prodigal son, are going to have a few. There's a few places that you can jump in and jump out of. But Jesus is bringing forth primarily an illustration to describe either himself, uh, his Lord, I mean, our God, the Father, or me. You know, beyond that, not too much more. And people try to get, as the saying goes, blood from beets because it looks like you should be able to beat it out and blood's going to come out of this vegetable. Well, that's futile. You, people do the same thing with a parable. Um, I was taught, and it was early in my, 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 my life, my ministry here, early 20s, probably first year. So I was probably 22, 23 years old, talking to a senior minister in the church, not here, but, but in the Episcopal church, you know, and learning um, what I could from different people. And he said, you know, I just believe that, that any, I mean, this is, this is a very close quote, it's a paraphrase, but really close to what he said. I just really believe, and so there's that, that, um, that overrated virtue of sincerity. <laughs> I just really believe, I'm always on my guard when I hear that. Um, I just really believe that any doctrine in the church has to go through the parable of the Good Samaritan for it to be true. I won't, I won't listen to anybody uh, that's putting something out there that's not going to sort of fit up against the Good Samaritan. I walked away thinking about that. I knew at the, I knew at the moment, I didn't have the language then, um, I had the humility. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was funny. Um, I didn't have the language then to process it, but I knew that something was wrong with that. Um, that every doctrine in the church has to pass through the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan for it to be true. And what he meant by that was, sort of like what this video is doing, that caricature of Mitchell and Webb's version of, of Jesus. That, look, it's a parable about goodness. Basically, it all comes down to this. Be nice to one another. Do good things to each other. When you see somebody who's hurt on the side of the road, don't be a priest. Don't pass by. Stop and help. The world would be a better place if we could do that. And he said, if every doctrine of the church conforms to that, I'm on board. I'm on board. If a doctrine doesn't, I'm off. Well, what is that? I mean, where is there any notion of theology proper? You know, sort of in the vertical plane, who is God? Theos. Where is there any, any, anything that has to do with any version of the atonement uh, of, of God coming into the world to save sinners? Where is there any description of who I am bringing me to a point of need? That as God comes into the world to save sinners, and Paul continues, of which I am the worst or the chief, there's this, this interpretation of who I am. So all this is to say, this was a senior minister in the church believing the lie that it all comes down to this. Be nice to each other. And plainly, there's nothing unique in that. There's nothing unique in the religious claim of nice. Uh, I mean, who doesn't believe in being nice to each other? Is that Christianity? Um, I've said this a thousand times, and I'll say it again. Uh, if that's what it's about, I don't need to be here. I'd much rather be somewhere else on a Sunday morning than right here. I really, really, really would. If all it is is be nice to each other, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, so that's just to say, what are parables? 
if it's not this moral Aesop's fables to repackage what is commonly understood uh, by everybody, uh, then what is it? Because it's not that. Um, comments or thoughts? We're going to get to a couple of parables today. Yeah, uh, Scott. What, what book is that in, or is it in several books? Which part? Uh, the Good Samaritan. That is in Luke. Um, it's only in Luke, and I can't remember what. Do you know? 16. Luke 16. Um, is it more to say that you know, there are, these people say they're the high priestess. Wasn't that, is it somewhat to say uh, that you don't have to be Jewish first to come to Christ and first come to God? Uh, you don't have to be a priest to come to God. Sort of all of us can come to God through me. Was that part of what? I, I think so. I really don't want to go too far in that because Ron's going to teach on that next Sunday and I want to take that away but but um, but here's a way here's a way and I'm going to stop here Scott it's a good question to want to sort of evade that um, but in the same way that I said the prodigal son isn't really about the prodigal son well, the parable of the good Samaritan isn't really about the good Samaritan um, if there's a Christ figure in that story who would it be the guy got beaten up and just left to the side should be, a, you know, the parable of the guy who got beaten up and thrown away. <laughs> That's Jesus. <laughs> That'd be a, be a parable about him. And so it's that kind of invitation, trying to turn this over just a hair. That's what Robert Capon helped me see a little bit on that particular parable, to reinforce this idea. Nowhere in the Bible is an unmade-up mind more necessary than as we read the parables, because we're even led by the people who've you know, translated the Bibles for us. And I'm not knocking anything about NIV, ESV, RSV, the good translations that are out there. Um, but they sometimes lead us down a predefined path that may not be helpful. So I'm going to stop there with the Good Samaritan. Um, I'm glad it's sort of evoking a response. Okay, good. So I knew it was Luke. So, um, um, why are parables so difficult to understand? It's all just sort of, I'm not going to redo this every week, um, kind of introducing parables broadly, and then we'll look at parables specifically every week. Uh, the first parable appears in Mark, well, in, in Mark anyway, the first parable appears, and it's a way that you can often describe, I think, one reason why there's this, this ready and willing uh, interest in, as I'm saying, we, we, we misinterpret the parables. Because Mark 4, the parable of the sower, um, a farmer goes out and he sows seed, and he takes some seed and he broadcasts it, meaning he just sort of throws it indiscriminately. He doesn't sort of plant it in place. He just broadly sort of chunks it everywhere. And what happens? Some of the seed falls in, uh, what, amongst thorns, on rocky soil, so the birds eat it, on shallow ground, so the thorns choke it, and the and the on the, the shallow ground, it uh it goes about an inch deep, and it quickly springs up, but there's it's rock, and so it can't take root, and so the sun comes and it withers it. But some of the seed falls on good soil, and um and uh and it returns a harvest thirty, sixty, or even a hundredfold. Um, and nobody understood, and Jesus even said, quoting this great, very obscure, uh, or obfuscating verse in Isaiah. Uh, he says, look, I'm speaking in parables so that they that would see would see but not understand. They would hear and not hear. You know, again, Jesus is a good teacher. Um, uh, I mean, he said, so that they that would see would see and not understand or not perceive and would hear and not hear. And so the disciples, just like you and me, 
say when they're finally alone with him, they take him back there and they say, I don't get it. You know, yeah. Like, can you tell us what that parable yeah. means? Because that was a common word, parabole. Uh, and they said, look, a farmer goes out to sow a seed, and the seed is the word of God. And when the birds come along, the birds are Satan, and Satan picks up the word and he steals them away. And then he goes on to say, and sometimes it comes and plants in good soil, and that's the gospel harvest, you know, 36. And so he lays it out. And so what do we do? We take that, understandably, as a template, and think what? Parables are allegories. Parables have the, every element in a parable has a spiritual significance. And so just like Jesus lined out where he says, you know, there's the farmer, okay, that must be God, the word, well, I know what the word is, and there's the birds of the air, okay, so that's Satan, and so you assign all these parts. And that's been a big part of church history throughout. Jason could say a lot about how Augustine and some others sort of, you know, very laboriously, good people, laboriously allegorized so many of those parts of the scriptures. And that's wrong. Just introducing this idea of not every parable is an allegory. A few of them have an allegorical interpretation, like the parable of the sower. But we get that wrong, because the word is not just the words of the scriptures, but Jesus himself. And we usually put Jesus in the role of the farmer, and it's better an assignment to say it's God the farmer, and he's sowing his son. But, you know, that's another story. We'll do that one later. Um... Some are allegorized. Others are more like metaphors or similitudes. The kingdom of heaven is like, just what you said. Um, or uh, the, uh, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or in another place, he says, the gospel is like you know, good leaven that works its way through the whole dough, where he's bringing all of these different ways. That's not an allegory. It's just a simile. It's like this, or it's similar to that. It's just holding something up contrasting it to another. Sometimes Jesus himself is sort of a living parable. I'm not going to go too far afield there. It's just to say that we, because of a few parables, we take that and assign that sort of mode of interpretation to all of them. And that's not right. Um, what's the way to approach a parable? Um, an old phrase is a sensus literalis, the literal sense of scripture. You take it for what it is. I've used this phrase several times, and it's important to come to again and again and again. When you're reading 1 Samuel, how do you read it? You read it like a history book. When you come to a parable, how do you read it? You read it like a parable. When you come to the book of Revelation, how do you read it? You, look at like, you read it like an eschatological prophecy. When you come to a gospel, how do you read it? You look at it like a gospel, a very particular genre of literature. You don't say all of the Bible um, should be read like Proverbs, which is just a you know, pithy sayings that are common wisdom. And so Jesus' gospels aren't the same thing as Proverbs, and neither is Genesis and certainly Ezekiel. You can't sort of draw that sort of thing out. To say a nagging wife, uh, it's better to sleep on the corner of a uh, the corner of a rooftop than to live with a nagging wife. That's in the Bible. So men, I just gave you a freebie. So go ahead. Um, you know, you don't read the Abraham story in the same way as you read that half-proverb. Um, so, I'm off that. Um, comments or thoughts? How do we approach parables and what we're doing? So, you know, I've got a question. Yeah. Why, you know, you, you joke about Jesus not being a good teacher, and you know, obviously there's the role of the Holy Spirit in that, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, revealing who he is in the Word. And we may not know, but why are the, why would he teach in such a way that is so 
confusing. Confusing. For his disciples to yeah, glad you brought me back in point. In there, say in Luke, let me even get the word. Um, in uh, in Mark 4 or elsewhere in Luke 8, where it's this sort of parallel passage, this is what he says. Um, when he describes uh, a parable, as he uses it to make a point, uh, unhelpfully, here's here's what he says in Luke 8, 9 and 10. This is, this is Jesus the good teacher, offering an explanation of sorts on the purpose of parables. The disciples said, why are you talking like this? And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, um, he said, to you... It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So he's talking to the disciples very particularly, not just everyone, but to the disciples. It's always important to say who's his audience. Um, And what's he doing? It sounds like there's this sort of inside job that's going on. He's got this preference for certain people, and so, you know, those that are in the know get to know, and those that are on the outside, well, I'm sorry. Um, it's not so much that. Hear what he says. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Um, that's a hair's breadth away from language like, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This idea of to you has been given. For unto you a child is born, for now the word has been made flesh and dwells among you. For uh, uh, mercy has been poured out once finally and for all as the perfect atonement and sacrifice for all of your sins. To you has been given the secret, the hidden knowledge of God. Um, borrowing from Paul in 1 Corinthians where, where he talks about through the Holy Spirit our apprehension of Christ. Um, it's never our gain. This will set up definitely in the parables that we're going to look at, um, but it's this uh, very ungentlemanly uh, assault on us that is being thrust. Almost the image, the movie image in my mind is uh, Keanu Reeves sort of flying into, um, oh, what's the cool character's name? Um, in Agent Smith, yeah. Um, where he flies into him. Agent Smith's not asking for that. Uh, that's kind of what, it's kind of a gross image, but that's what Jesus is doing. He's sort of thrusting himself. To you is being given, not like, will you take this, but just thrusting into us and blowing us up. That's what the disciples didn't know what they were signing up for, but that's exactly what they signed up for. Um, and then the disciples went out and became apostles and wrote the living record of the, the living word of God. So that's kind of what's happening, I think. Um, let me say it another way. Uh, as it's God himself giving himself through his son to his disciples. Uh, another way of putting it, and I, I forget where I heard this first. This isn't Robert Capon, but has this ever happened to you where you, you hear a word, like canadal? Anybody know what the word, you know, where the word canadal is coming out a lot right now? Two days ago, that Indian kid spelled it in, uh, in, the, in the spelling bee. And so now, you know, the word canadal is all over the place. I never saw the word canadal until, you know, two days ago. And now I've seen it, you know, 18 times in the last three days. I don't know what y'all read, but that's what I'm doing. Um, or the word ubiquitous. Do you remember when you learned the word ubiquitous? It seemed like then, ubiquitously, the word ubiquitous was everywhere, seemingly everywhere at one time. Um, and before you learned it, you never even heard it. And now after you hear it, it seems like it's everywhere. Does that make sense? Is there a word that you can think of? That's kind of what's going on here. That's definitely a similitude. It's a parable in itself. Uh, 
that pers- before the word before I knew what the word ubiquitous meant, I probably saw it a lot or I heard it. It just didn't register. I didn't perceive it. I didn't hear it. Even though sort of it went on my eardrum, it just bounced off, so to speak, because I didn't know that word. Then when I knew the word, now you could really sort of preach this out, the capital W, you know, the word made flesh. And then when I knew the word, I could not see him. I could not hear the word ubiquitous twice a day. I could not see the world through new glasses, um, to borrow an AA phrase. Um, uh, everything is different. That's this idea, that being arrested by Jesus, where Keanu Reeves flies into Agent Smith and explodes. Now, I can't not not <laughs> sort of realize that, oh, he's in me. Um, yeah, John? Well, another explanation would be that what Jesus was talking about is he was telling me the story. He was telling what? Telling me the you the story. story, right. So. Fair. And, and, and in 20 years, you might be able to understand it even in a, not in a different way, but I would say in a deeper way. I think that's probably a fair way of putting it. This word interpreting us more than us interpreting the word. I would agree. Let's look at the, the parables. Any, any thoughts on parables broadly? Um, what did I want to get across pretty strongly? Uh, they're, not what they, they're not what we think they are. They're not great examples of Jesus using very sort of helpful teaching aids because, in fact, they're the opposite. They're some of the most difficult things to, to understand in Jesus' sort of quiver of, of, uh, of teaching aids. Um, don't make parables into allegories. They're not Aesop's fables where everything has a moral sort of behavioral intent. These aren't good things to teach our children if we want sort of compliant kids. We'll look at that today. Um, you know, it's really sort of, you know, handle with care. Uh, you know, count the cost before you go wandering into the world of parables. Any comments or thoughts? Let's look. Where's my little clicker? Um, too many things in my pockets. Then it looks silly. There it is. Last pocket checked. Um, uh, Luke 18, the parable of the unjust judge or the persistent widow. That looks pretty small, but um, let's see if we can read it. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So oftentimes, um, we'll get some idea of how the parable ought to be read. Um, Luke is telling us straight off, here's a parable. Um, you should guide your interpretation towards this. Uh, you ought always to pray and not lose heart. So he, Jesus said, in a certain city there was a judge who... Uh, neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So there's a parable. 
Um, good example of a parable. Um, kind of seems straightforward. It's a parable that tells a story. Not all parables tell stories, by the way, but this one does, where you've got characters and a very sort of, you know, even a little bit of a plot. You've got a, a judge, and you've got a widow, and, and they're having something of a conversation, and there's some, some resolution that, that even uh, comes after some element of tension. So it's a story in sort of three, four verses. tells a story. But it's not an easy story. You're like, so my inner voice is saying this. Jesus is telling me this story, and I guess I'm probably supposed to be like one of these people, and so maybe the widow, because I just feel like I'm supposed to, and she just keeps going to him again and again and again, and so maybe that's called prayer, and I just keep nagging or being persistent and not losing heart, and then God will give me what I ask for. That's what this parable means. Um... No, it's not what this parable means. But that's how my that's how my voice goes along with it. Because then he comes along and he says these strange things uh, with these rhetorical questions. Uh, will God give? Will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God doesn't seem speedy in my life. And then this very difficult passage uh, or verse, half verse, to understand at the end. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Seems like we're being set up for a no here, but faith is supposed to be a good thing. We hope he finds faith. And so suddenly you're into this parable and you're like, man, I was better off before I started than now because I'm not sure who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to think or how to answer these questions that he's asking me, and so I'm feeling stupid. Welcome to parables. You know, I mean, this is, this is, this, this not, it's not helpful sometimes. What are we doing? Trying to build on some of the, 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 the attacks that I used earlier. One of my soapboxes recently, and I'm going to get on it this summer whenever I'm teaching. Um, God save us from the rush to apply every single verse in the Bible somewhere in our lives. Let me say that again because that's something of a controversial statement if you were in a certain tradition of the church. God save us from this rush to this, this need to apply every single verse to some part of my life every single day. Um, this rush to apply the Word of God. Um, so my challenge to you is to go out this day after reading this parable and pray. I want us to sign up for a seven-day challenge, a 40-day challenge, because 40 is a good number in the Bible, a 40-day challenge that we're going to pray persistently. It's going to look like nagging, but surely it's not, because we have this idea of who God is, and he, he can't like nagging. So persistent is a better word. So let's, let's pray persistently and see how this church changes. All right, let's pray. You know, that would be this rush to apply. God save us from that. I really mean that. That's not it. Don't rush. There's not this need to apply the word, every single verse, the spiritual element, to, to, uh, to say this makes sense to me in some way that I need to walk out of here and, and, and apply that to my life as a parent or as, a, as, a, as, a, as an employee or an employer or as a, as a son of God or... You know, as somebody likes to knit, or whatever it is that you think you are. Um, there's not an application always. So, what do we find here? Um, we find, uh, I'm going to use a lot of coupon in this, uh, a description of who I am and who God is and what God has done, as we often do. 
God, very uncomfortably, is being set up here as an anti-hero. God, an unjust judge. Think about that for a minute. God is an unjust judge. Well, that goes against our idea of God being fair, of God delivering justice, of God, uh, in the end, righting all wrongs. Now, that's still all true, that eschatologically speaking, meaning at the end of the day, everything is going to be made well. Revelation 22 tells us that. Um, But here, God is being set up as an unjust judge, and it's an apt illustration of grace. Because what does unjust mean? And we can start to look at some of these phrases in here. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. I'm going to say that's autonomos. Um, Autonomos, like um, there's an autonomy here. I couldn't think of the word. Uh, which literally means a, a, a law, nomos, unto oneself. He neither fears God nor respects man. Pretty short and pithy way of saying this guy was all about himself. He was an island, separated, needed nobody else. And so in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, there is something about a widow. What do we know about widows? Can place it into a context there and say, Widows, man, this is a star, 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 star loser. You know, she had nothing, no place in society, was uh, was absent of voice, had no advocate, had no defense, had no means of making an income. When her husband died, basically she was uh, at the mercy of the church, and even then it was very tenuous. Um, so she is as good as dead. Now, that's a pretty good description of us, we being dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul would describe us in Ephesians 2, and yet she doesn't seem to know it. (laughs) That's also a pretty good description of me. I don't actually act like a dead man, even though I am. I actually think that I have some agency in this world and walking around telling God what to do or whatever else, even though I'm actually dead in my trespasses and sins. And so here's this woman who's as good as dead, but she's not acting like it, who's coming to this unjust judge. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice. The word here is actually justify me. So we get all of, you know, sort of the Bible's word here, justify me against my adversary, against the world, the flesh, the devil, all these things which conspire against me to keep me down. For a while, for a while, for in Kronos, tick, 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 he refused. But afterwards, he said to himself, the Bible's full of really good sort of inner monologues. If You sort of start watching for him. So he talks to himself and says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, I'm sort of perfect in and unto myself. That's God. Um, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. I will justify her. Why? Not because she has any case. Not because her case has any merit legal in a legal sense, because he's a judge. Interesting that he's drawing in the legal sense this description of grace. He sets up a judge, one who is by definition not gracious. I hope anybody who's a judge in this room or in the years to come won't be a graceful judge. You administer justice in a way that 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 is uh, impartial. Grace is radically partial. It is giving somebody exactly the opposite of what they deserve. That's an unjust judge. Grace is being given something from a judge that we, in fact, don't deserve. 
It's absolutely the opposite of justice. It's God. So he says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet even yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. Actually, is like beat me black and blue is what the word is there. So I won't be bruised and bloodied. And he's about to say speedily, as in the cross is coming, when he's beaten black and blue. So there's a lot of prescience here. So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge... And so now it's Jesus talking back to the disciples. Uh, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not... So period. Hear what he says. See what he did? He gave her something, not for any merit of her case, not because she deserved it, not even because she was a nice person. She was a dead person, and he just gives it to her simply because he wanted to, simply because it was in his best interest uh, to, uh, to give it to her, because he didn't want to be bothered anymore. Um, that is a radical description of God who just says, you know, I don't really care who Gil is, what he's doing, the merits of his case, anything else. I'm just going to give it to him just because I can just because I will, just because I'm absolutely, uh, I'm willing to be perceived, God speaking, as a bad judge. I have no care of that perception. I just want to give it to him just because. Um, And then it continues. And will not give justice, and will not God give justice to his elect. And so there is an element in this parable where it's... um, uh, wouldn't if, if, if this happens, wouldn't God do it more? As it doesn't any father give a gift to his children, how much more will God give you good things? You know, that sort of idea. Um, will not God give justice, justify his elect who cry to him day and night, cry to him as dead people because they have need? Um, will he delay, delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He will justify them speedily. In the chronos, the tick, 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 tick of this parable, What's about to happen? He's about to justify us. How does he do that? He's about to die. He's about to be bloody, black and blue. He's about to be, as the word says here, beaten down by his continual coming. And this unjust judge is willing to be perceived as a bad God to illustrate his goodness in simply saying, look, while this woman was yet a sinner, I died for her. I came to her and I gave myself black and blue and gave her justice, justified her speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, after all this, the answer is plainly no. And the unjust judge says, and I don't care. (laughs) I don't need to find faith on earth. I create that which is pleasing to me. I don't find it. I'm not going to go about and discover, oh, there's some righteousness in Reynolds and there's some righteousness in Chip and I can do this. I can kind of work with that in Jason. You know, he's not sort of finding this. He's creating it out of us who are as good as dead, having no voice, no merit to our case, no grounds and stand whatsoever. He simply gives because that's what he does. Any comments or thoughts? So the parable is not really about the persistent widow. It's not really about pray uh, because this is the example. There's not this application process. Um, The parable is actually about the unjust judge 
where it's more of a description of who God is and who I am as a dead man uh, who God, God moves towards, even though that means the definition of him as a judge is, uh, is being completely turned inside out and upside down. Um, and he moves away from the judge, and what does he do? He becomes judgment. That's the whole thing of the cross. He becomes that for me, which I cannot be myself. He becomes placed under the judgment um, so that I don't have to. That's just one way in. That's a long look at parables. Um, we didn't look at the, par- the publican and the tax collector, but say la vie. Let me pray. Lord, for this uh, class, I give you, uh, I ask you that you would be present with us for the uh, for the for the summer, looking at all the parables that we're looking at. That you would draw us to those parts that you would want us to know, um, interpret us, and give us freedom. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks.